0: Welcome, you guys. For those of you I don't have the pleasure of knowing, my name is Caleb. I'm the student minister here at City Church. And uh, for those of you who don't know, our uh, teaching pastor, Pastor Ryan, is on sabbatical right now, where he'll be for the next seven weeks. He just finished his first week. And so it's just you and me today. So uh, uh, I'll apologize now. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) No, but... um, and then over the next few weeks, I know, I know in your heart right now, the first thought you had thinking about Ryan being gone is, what are we going to do about this series in Hebrews? We've been in it for so long. Are we going to wait eight weeks to finish? I know, I know, let me ease your anxiety. We're going to finish it out. So over the next three weeks, we're going to finish out Hebrews. Ryan's got some awesome friends of his that are going to come in and preach. And so today, I get to preach on Hebrews 11. Uh, I think it's maybe the juiciest chapter in all of Hebrews. And if you were here a few weeks ago, I think Ryan gave me chapter 11 because he feels bad about giving me Melchizedek a few weeks ago. Uh, and if you weren't here for that, you might be like, who's Melchizedek exactly? That's my point. Uh, and so, But today, we're going to go through Hebrews 11. Um, before we dive into the text, I want us to take a broad picture about uh, the book of Hebrews and how chapter 11 kind of fits into that. Um, As you see up on the screen, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is greater. In chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is greater than the angels. In chapters 3, he's greater than Moses and Joshua. And then he's the high priest. He's greater than all the priests in the Old Testament. In chapter 7, the greatest priest, Melchizedek, he's greater than him. In chapters 8, it talks about how his new covenant that Jesus brings is better than the old covenant. In 9 and 10, it's about how Jesus, is, his sacrifice is greater than any other sacrifice. And now we're here in chapter 11. And it's famously called the Hall of Faith. It's all about these people in the Old Testament and the faith that they had. And it's kind of a weird chapter about how on earth does this fit into chapters 1 and 10 of Jesus being greater well, chapter 11 is the call to respond. Chapters 1 to 10 have been building this argument that Jesus is greater. Jesus is the best. And chapter 11 is the what will you do about it. And the response to Jesus being greater is faith. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this. For faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by the people of old received their commendation. The Greek word for assurance here is hypostasis, and that another translation, maybe a better translation for this word is confidence. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I think uh, maybe something that we're prone to believe about faith is that it's blind. We say blind faith a lot. Or, t- or take a leap of faith. Like you don't know what's gonna just take a leap of faith. That's not biblical. Uh, biblical faith is not something that's contrary to the evidence, and you just got to believe anyway. That's not biblical faith at all. Biblical faith is this is the truth. Now trust it. And so faith is a firm confidence that is grounded in the reality and the trust in a sovereign God. I think I've got that up on a slide right here. Maybe I should have. There, boom. There it is. Uh, Faith is a firm confidence grounded in the reality of and trust in a sovereign God. God, who though is unseen, is all-powerful, all-wise, and eternally trustworthy. Faith is a settled confidence that God will do what he says he will do simply because he is God. That's what faith is. But in the Old Testament, faith looked a little different than it does in the New Testament for you and I. So, I want to do some soteriology here for a minute. That's just a fancy word for the study of salvation. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. So, if Jesus saves us, we know that what saves us is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. That saves you. But what saved Moses? What saved Abraham? What saved Adam? A lot of people think well, it's the sacrifices. They offered the sacrifices to forgive their sins, and that's how they were saved. They were saved by their sacrifices. That's not true. That's wrong. Because if that were true, then they're saved by their works. It would be their works that saved them. And God has never been about works saving. Never in history has God allowed works to save humankind. For the Old Testament, and those who were before Jesus... What saved them was their faith in a coming Messiah, was that God gave them promises that were very vague, and a lot of them did not know how they would be fulfilled, but they had faith and they believed in these promises, and that is what saved them. We are saved by the Messiah who came, they were saved by the Messiah who will come. And I think it's important for us to know that, because as we look through these people in the Old Testament, I think we can have a greater appreciation for their faith, because I think their faith was a lot harder. I think faith back then was a lot harder than it is for you and I. Because if you think about it, back then, let's say we're, let's say we're in like the days of uh, Cain and Abel or whatever, and God gives us his promise. You either trust in him and you believe it because God said it so, or maybe you doubt it. Well, let's say you doubt it. You don't have a whole lot of... uh, God doesn't have much of a track record if you're a Cain and Abel and you're one of these first humans on this earth because God and humanity have not interacted very much. But for you and I, we have the Bible. We have a 2,000-year track record of God being nothing but faithful to his people, loyally loving to them, and righteous in his judgment. And so faith then was so much harder than it is for you and I now. And I don't say that to condemn us. That's not meant to condemn us that, oh my gosh, well, yeah, it's so much easier for us and yet we still struggle with it, what the heck. But it's meant for us to have a greater appreciation for what they did. And so briefly, I'm gonna look through them and just talk about them a little bit, about the first few um, Old Testament saints that are kind of mentioned. In chapter 11, in that first section, it talks about how Abel and about how he offered a massive sacrifice to God, and then you have Enoch, who walked with God, and then you have Noah, who in the middle of a desert built a boat because he said a flood was coming, and then Abraham, who would leave his home. He had a comfortable home and a comfortable life, and he left it because God told him to go to a promised land, and then Sarah, who at 90 years old would conceive her first son, Isaac. They had this faith that was so, so much harder than it is for you and I. And you and I still struggle in faith because we're humans and we're broken. And so the question I want to ask is, why why do we lack confidence in God? Why do you and I struggle in our faith? We all do, but why? I think this answer has a lot of, uh, this question has a lot of complicated answers, uh, but I think it could kind of be boiled down to this we've all been jaded by this broken world. You've experienced things, things have been done to you, and you've done things that have jaded you. There have been times where maybe you needed God to rescue someone and he did not do that. Or maybe it was you needed God to heal someone and he didn't do that. Or maybe it was you needed God to show himself and reveal himself to one of your family members and he didn't do that. Whatever it is, there have all been times in our lives where we have been jaded and it creates this lack of confidence in God and in who he is. It's not God's actions that created that lack of confidence. It's our perception of those actions. We say, God, you didn't do this the way I wanted to. Are you really good? Are you really loving? But that's exactly what faith is, right? Faith is this word that we... uh, We'd like to put it on throw pillows. Uh, we like to put it on these little cute little bathroom signs or whatever else you do in that cursive font, you know? Um, that's all over Sunview Cafe. Uh, um, sorry, the Sunview Cafe, man, those decorations drive me crazy. Uh, um, I, I said it. I said it. I said it. I went there. I hope nobody who owns Sunview Cafe is here. <laughs> That would be really awkward. If you are here, I apologize. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, But it was funny. Uh, But here's my point, right? Faith is not this word we put on a throw pillow. Faith is a fight. That we have to fight for our faith because we do get jaded by this world. And so to remain confident in God and to remain and to have trust in him, you have to fight for it. It's not something that just comes to you. So how do we fight for it, right? How do we fight for our faith? Well, Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, he kind of summarizes these people we've talked about, Abel and Noah and Abraham. And this is what he says. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, For people who speak, thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 13, they all died in faith, having not received the things promised. None of these men that we've mentioned so far would inherit the promised land. In fact, it wouldn't come until 500 years after Jacob that they would inherit the promised land. And I think when we see this and we say, "Wow, they, they were promises promised and they never even got to see it fulfilled," that's so sad. Like, is this a lament? Are they are they complaining about this? No. This is a this is a declaration of victory not a sad statement because the emphasis isn't on that they didn't see the promise fulfilled. The emphasis is that even though they didn't see the promise fulfilled, they died in faith. It's one thing to live a life of faith. It's another, to, it's another thing that in the face of death, you still believe and you still have faith that God will still remain, remain true to his word even though you didn't get to see it firsthand. Don't you want to be known as someone who dies in faith? that not only lived a life of faith, but up until the very end, to your last breath, you had faith. And that's exactly what these men did. They trusted in God to keep his promises, and they died according to those promises. But how? How did they do that? Well, I think verses 14 and 16 tell us. They did it because their desires changed. It says if they desired their homeland, if they desired what they wanted themselves, they would have just returned and gone back. But as it is, they didn't do that. They stayed where God had called them to. And they didn't get to inherit that promised land, but they followed and they obeyed anyway. And what happens is their desires changed. They didn't have these selfish desires for themselves. What they desired was to follow God and to be with him. Here's my point. Faith redirects our desires from ourselves to God. God. When we have faith and confidence in what God is, what, who God is, and in what he does, our desires change, right? So let's like rewind the tape here. Um, you before Christ, before you became a Christian, Ephesians 2 says you're dead in your sins. An implication of that is that the only desires you had before Jesus were for yourself, Every desire was a selfish desire of your flesh, as the Bible calls it. What you wanted. Your desires were for yourself and only for yourself. You did not desire God. You desired yourself. But God in his providence and in his sovereignty chose you. And they use this fancy word regeneration, meaning that God made your heart alive to him. And you began to... After God revealed himself to you, you began to learn about him and know him and love him and you followed him and you believed in the gospel. And at that point, part of being a new creation is that your desires changed. You went from these selfish desires that you had to you desire things that were so much greater. Those selfish things no longer satisfy you, although they do for a moment, right? Because we still wrestle with that. But you desired God himself. Your desires changed. But here's the thing, right? Faith changes our desires, we know that. But we still struggle. Because all the time, we revert back to our own desires. And we're selfish, and, and we do that. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I was going to give an example, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> because I think it might get me in trouble with my wife. So uh, <laughs> it feels like the right thing, probably not to. <laughs> but she's not in the room. No, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I was tempted. I'm not doing it. Um, we have this battle. We have this battle for our desires. And C.S. Lewis, I want to read this quote from C.S. Lewis because it describes this battle of our desires perfectly. He says this. You might have heard it. This is one of his more famous quotes. It says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The problem with our battle over our desires is we're far too easily pleased. Let me give you some examples. I'm more easily pleased spending my money on myself and spending it selfishly than I am pleased by giving it generously and... Uh, sacrificially giving. I'm more easily pleased by checking the church box and just doing it, Come to service, getting in and out, than I am pleased by doing the hard work of plugging in and serving and building community. I'm more easily pleased by relying on Jessica, our kids minister, and me, our student minister, to teach my child about Jesus than I am by doing the hard work of taking on the role of being the primary disciple maker of my family. I'm more easily pleased to say, I need to read my Bible more. I know I need to read my Bible more than I am pleased by doing the hard work of being disciplined and getting in a fight club and reading my Bible regularly. I'm more easily pleased keeping my faith to myself than I am pleased to get out of my comfort zone and share it with my coworkers and neighbors and friends. We are far too easily pleased. So how do we foster and cultivate desires that are not easily pleased. Well, this verse says it. We remember the reason they died in faith is because they remembered the promises of God. One of the biggest themes in all of scripture is this. I'm going to start over here and I'm going to work my way over here to illustrate. You got God, you got man. Man messes up. God saves. Man rejoices. Man forgets, man idolizes something, gets in trouble, God saves. Man rejoices, man forgets, man falls into idolatry, God saves, man forgets, God saves, man forgets. That's the theme of the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament is that over and over again. God saves. Man man is happy. And then man falls into temptation. And then man needs saving again. And then he forgets. It's this constant cycle of forgetfulness. Over and over again, we forget what God has done. So then, what is the solution? We remember. I think one of the most uh, slept on spiritual disciplines hold on. Uh, I forget. I'm used to speaking to kids on Wednesday nights. Some of you might have said, slept on? What does that mean? and I'm saying this because I said this to our worship pastor, Matt, just uh, earlier this week, and he didn't know what it meant. So uh, let me just explain. When I said slept on, what I meant is like um, underrated, like when something's underrated or like, or like people don't uh, like know about it and they really should be doing it, um, something that's underrated, right? Uh, I think one of the most underrated practices is scripture memory. If you want to remember the promises of God, well, memorize them. So I think I would be pretty silly if I didn't talk about some promises of God in this, if we're talking about having faith in God and who he is and what he does. So here's two promises that are absolutely worth putting to our memory and remembering them. First one is this, Romans 8, really all of Romans 8 is worth memorizing, but it was very difficult, but I chose this little section of it right here. Um, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise. You cannot outsin the love of God. There is nothing you did to earn God's love and there is nothing you can ever do to lose it. There is no sin that is unforgivable. Here's another one. Now, before we go to it, it's from the Book of Revelation, which I know is kind of weird. I think we all get a little weirded out by the Book of Revelation. There's a lot of there's a lot of weird stuff in that. Apache helicopters, if you believe that. I'm just kidding. There's no Apache helicopters. Uh, But um, (laughs) but we get weirded out by the Book of Revelation, and there is some weird stuff. It makes sense, but here's the whole point of the Book of Revelation is this right here. And this is why it's so important and it's so powerful is because the whole book is this. Jesus is coming back and everything changes. When Jesus comes back, everything changes. And here's how. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. We have not dwelt with God like this, except for in the garden of Eden. And we will get to experience that. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is huge. Can you imagine a world with no hurt, a world with no mental illness, a world where no one is alone, and there's no abuse, and there's there's nothing? It is perfect. And here's why this promise is so huge and worth committing to memory, is because what this promise says is every hurt you've ever experienced will be redeemed. There is nothing you've been through that will not be healed. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He will heal it all. You come from a broken family. In heaven, you will have a perfect family. You struggle with anxiety, depression, or another sort of mental illness. Jesus is saying there's a day where that will all be relieved. You struggle with shame from stuff you've done. There will be a day where there is no more shame, and you don't ever feel that ever again. We have faith that this eternity is real and inevitable because we can look on God's faithfulness in the past. Jesus came once. And so if he came the first time, then why on earth would he not come the second time? He is coming and he will come back. And it will change everything. And when we memorize these promises, when we cling to words like this, how can we do anything but desire him? Doesn't that promise stir your heart for God? Doesn't it make you say, what the heck is a 401k compared to this promise? Like, and don't ask me, I don't even know what a 401k is. But I, I knew it would work, so. You think I'm joking, but I'm not. <laughs> Gotta get me off track. I don't even, that wasn't in my notes. Uh throughout the second section of the heroes that the author of Hebrews describes, he talks about how their desires changed. Abraham offered up Isaac. What Abraham desired was an heir. He wanted a son, and he never had one. And then God asks him to sacrifice his son. If his desires had been for himself, he would have never gone up to that mountain. He would have never put Isaac on that altar. But he did, because his desires changed. And God, in his providence, brought the ram And he sacrificed the ram. Isaac, at the end of his life, blessed Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob would bless all the sons of Joseph. And then Joseph would remind the Israelites of their salvation from Egypt. Moses, by the faith of his parents, would be hidden for three months from the Egyptians. And then when he grew up, he would not take the identity of being the Egyptian prince that he could have been. But he would identify with the Israelites. And he would suffer for it. The Israelites, in faith, would cross the Red Sea. And in faith, the wall of Jericho would fall down. Because Rahab in faith welcomed the spies. Here's the point. The point of chapter 11 in this whole chapter isn't to say, look how great their faith was. It was so much harder than faith for you. I mean, you're terrible. That is not the point. That's not the point at all. And so if you feel that way at all, I want you to know that is not from the text, that is not from me, and that is not from the spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The point of us looking to them is not to compare ourselves to them. It's not for them to condemn us. It's for us to be encouraged by them. That if they can have this faith and they can live a life and they can die in faith, then we can live and die in faith too. And it all culminates... With this right here. I was only supposed to have chapter 11, but I had to take these first two verses in 12 because they're all about chapter 11. So whatever Chump is teaching next week, uh, I took those from him. Uh, um, and he's just gonna have to get over it. Uh, <laughs> it's not you, Ken, is it? Okay, good. <laughs> uh, it's not you either, Kyle, is it? Okay, good. All right. But the Chump's not here, so even better. Uh, <laughs> man, I'm getting myself in all kinds of trouble today. Uh, there's no way he's watching online, I'm sure, right? <laughs> surely not, surely not. Um, here we go, 12, 1 and two. says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This whole text comes down to this one application. This whole book comes down to this right here. Faith endures to the end by exalting Jesus every step of the way. This analogy of the race really speaks to me. For those you don't know, I ran cross-country all high school and college, and um, this was, our, this was our theme verse one year as a team, and um, I, if, if you don't know my story, I was quite the hooligan, uh, and I did some, I was pretty dumb, I still am, but not in the ways I used to be, and um, I was going to share some stories, but I remembered that this is recording me back here, and I don't know the statute of limitations on things, and so... <laughs> if, it felt safer to just refrain. So, uh, if you want to hear those stories, you're gonna have to buy me coffee. So, uh, and when I'm not being recorded. And so, um, but what I was obsessed with when I when I'm around 16 or 17, I went through a really rough patch when I was like 13, 14, 15 years old. And as, as I started coming back to Jesus, uh, I was obsessed with this question. But is it a sin? <laughs> and hey, maybe you're not thinking about this. I, I, a lot of people see the world in black and white. One of my shortcomings, I'm aware of, I like to see the world in gray. You know, is it right? Is it wrong? Is it somewhere in the middle? Uh, I saw a lot of gray. And so I was obsessed with this question. Well, the Bible doesn't say that that's wrong. Like, it's not explicitly in there. And so I kept asking my cross-country coach, who discipled me like no one else. Brandon, shout out, man. you the guy. And... Um, I kept. I, we'd have all these conversations about, well, is this a sin? Well, is that a sin? Well, is this a sin? And he pointed me to Hebrews twelve one and two, and he goes, "What does that say? It's not just lay aside every sin, but every weight and sin. There are lots of weights that weigh us down from running to Jesus that aren't sins, but that if we believe who Jesus is, we ought to lay him down anyway." And he he quite he slapped me in the face, really. And he goes, that is the lowest question you could ask, Caleb. There is no lower question than just, is it a sin? Because following Jesus is not about not sinning. Following Jesus is about running to him. I think the church would be a lot more beautiful today if we would cast aside not just the sins that keep us from running to him, but the weights that keep us from running to him. We exalt Jesus by casting off these sins and these weights and by getting rid of everything that doesn't help us run to Jesus. And here's the second way. We do this by praising him for who he is and in what he's done. We exalt Jesus every step of the way by praising him for who he is and what he did. Kyle said it perfectly in this welcome. It's great is your faithfulness, O oh God. Not great is the faithfulness of Caleb. It's great is your faithfulness, O oh God. You were faithful to me when I am nothing but unfaithful to you. And yet you remain ever faithful. We exalt Jesus for who he is. And in this passage alone, he is the founder of our faith. Without Jesus, there is no Christianity. It'd just be Judaism still. He's not only the founder of our faith, but he is the perfecter of our faith. The entire Bible from start to finish is about him. You are made perfect by what Jesus has done for you and not by anything you could ever do for yourself. Not only is he the founder and perfecter, but he endured the cross, despised the shame, a cross that was undeserved and unwanted. And he did it anyway, not begrudgingly, but for the joy that was set before him. He is worthy of praise. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of God, where he intercedes for you daily in prayer. And he is sitting there until one day When God tells him it's time for him to come back and he will come and he will change this world more than he did the first time and everything will be redeemed. Let's strive to be like these Old Testament heroes. Let's have a faith whose desires are not easily quenched but that we desire God. Let City Church be known as a people who had deep confidence and unwavering trust in a God who deserves it all. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. A church that clings to the promises of God because we need them. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you that you are so faithful. Lord, I'm sorry that I'm nothing, but I'm so unfaithful to you. And yet you have been nothing but faithful and loyal in your love to me. God, I pray that we would be a faithful people. Lord, help change our desires. Help me not be so easily pleased. Lord, help me cling to your word so that like these Old Testament heroes, I, too, can die in faith. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.